Um, so a lot of us have met you before, um, or some of us have met you so far during the conference, but could you just, for any of us who don't know you, could you tell us who you are, please? Hi, I'm George. <laughs> I'm married to Kath, and I've got four children, uh, Naomi, Lucy, Hannah and Joey. Um, I'm a minister, vicar, in uh, St John Over in Winsford, which is north of Chester, in the Chester Diocese. And part-time, uh, one day a week, or six hours a week, really, I'm uh, the regional director for Church Society for the Northern Area, which, which is wonderful right. and exciting. Amazing. <laughs> what does that look like, your role in Church Society? What does that include? Um, I, I must say, it's, it's an amazing team, and uh, it's lovely to be part of, and I kind of feel a great privilege of being part and wondering why, why I'm there with all these amazing academics and brilliant people. So uh, we do meet every week on the blessed Zoom. And, uh, and, and, the less blessed team. <laughs> <laughs> the less blessed team. Oh, yeah, we, we a whole, I forgot it was teams. Uh, and, and that's kind of the hub of what we, we, we sort of encourage one another and, and, and the work that we're doing. My particular role is to network with uh, people in the northern dioceses, uh, which is wonderful to, to find out what's going on beyond the local church, even beyond, beyond my own diocese. I've always been interested in that, so that's just a, an opportunity to, to be nosy, which I really enjoy. Uh, I, I'm, but again, it gives a brilliant se- a sense of context of what is going on more nationally. For the church society, that is great. It means that resources that we provide and design are useful. It also means we learn what's, what it's really like. What's really like in Manchester diocese? Uh, yeah. Curry's amazing, but, <laughs> but uh, actually, <laughs> but but yeah, they meet at the Curry House, the regional group. It's really good, uh, but but the, what they're up against is incredibly difficult. Uh, uh, so so I do a lot of that. I I also uh, convene with Tony and Chris, the other regional directors. A thing called Norm, which is a network of re- revitalisation ministries, uh, and that kind of got going a couple of years ago. When people like me in revitalisation ministries, I thought there might be more of them and they might need some encouragement. I thought there'd be about two dozen and we could have a little webinar and encourage one another. After the first webinar, I discovered there was over 100 people doing this kind of ministry that God had just called and they'd just been getting on with it and thought they were the only one. And it's very isolating doing this. Uh, being on your own in a church that's not evangelical and or has lost its way. And so that was extraordinary mainly because we discovered God was at work in a way that we just didn't realise in the Church of England, in the backwaters, like First Samuel, doing something by his grace, bringing the, his word to places that had never heard it. And so we've been, that's grown and, and grown and grown uh, and uh, been a very encouraging thing. So it now has a webinar, it has an, uh, a newsletter, it has a WhatsApp group, everything's got to have all of those. Absolutely. The WhatsApp group, though, is really, it's, it's so encouraging that people say, can you pray for me? I'm in this situation. And you think, woo, how are you coping with that? Uh, 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 or has anybody got any resources on, on this thing? I've just got this opportunity to do it and I've got no time to prepare. Uh, it, it really works very well. So there's, that's quite exciting, Norm. <coughs> I also uh, help convene a conference called the Fellowship and Word and Spirit Conference, which has been going for a while, which if you kind of, you know... It's the next logical step from Jake. Mm. Yeah, if you like this kind of friendly, rigorous theology, but openness uh, and, and really delving into stuff and, and, and uh, being encouraged in your ministry, whatever it is, with a, with a good reformed ecclesiology, FWS is where you'll feel at home. It's, it's in February, and our subject next time is revival. 
not good. Uh, so so if, you, if, you, if you're sort of in your first incumbency now and you're thinking, mm, maybe I, I could do that, great, come along. Talk to me, talk to Rob, talk to Lee. Oh, that'd be good. Incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you. Let's pray for you and then enjoy your, your message. Father God, we lift up George. Thank you for his ministry, his heart, um, and the fruit that you bring from his obedient life. Lord, would you speak to us now and bless him as he teaches us. Um, thank you for all that you have grown in him and for all he's about to share with us. Amen. Oh, Amen. Thank you very much. I'm just going to grab my notes. What sort of picture comes into your head when you think of a local church? Perhaps um, you might have heard this one. Is it a boat with a crew and some passengers? Uh, you'd probably rejoice if it was a lifeboat where everyone on board is all crew, all volunteers who are trained and ready and all focused on one urgent purpose, willing to risk their lives to save others. But frankly, it's not that. It's not quite a cruise ship, though, where, where the crew is paid to keep the passengers happy with hope cuisine, spectacular cabaret, and spa treatments. Though that does look fun. <laughs> well, what about, how does a local church appear to a non-Christian? Uh, if you want to know more about um, cruise ships, by the way, um, James do worked on one <laughs> as a pianist. I found that out at breakfast. So go and ask him what cruise ship life is like. It's glowing now. I, I, I really enjoyed that, James. You shouldn't have told me. In the cabaret? <laughs> <laughs> how, how does a local church appear to a non-Christian? Or perhaps a hive of bees, <coughs> impressively industrious, buzzing around, producing lots of sweet honey, colourfully clad, almost cuddly, from a distance, <laughs> slightly unnerving up close, and irascibly terrifying in large numbers in a confined space. <laughs> or maybe an old curiosity shop charmingly appointed with rows of odds and ends, many of which are endearing and intriguing, but not one product seems to embrace the values of the modern world. Well, none of these pictures are quite right. The joy of the cruise ship passenger lacks the commitment of the lifeboat crew and, and vice versa. The unhurried, welcoming ambience of the old curiosity shop lacks the unity and purpose of the hive and vice versa. And we see that more clearly when we compare these pictures with the pictures of the church that we find in the New Testament. One body with many members and Christ as the head. A building made up of living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone. A bride beautifully adorned for her husband. And the most common, or perhaps the one we don't notice so much, a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, the local church is always a work in progress. When you think of a local church, is it a parish church or a benefice in the Church of England? I think for most non-Christians, it certainly will be. Though they will only think of the building the church meets in. 
But when you think of a parish or a benefice in the Church of England, do you think there's something wrong with that picture? Quite a few things wrong and more coming. Are you concerned that the picture will become so distorted that it will no longer be a biblical picture? She will no longer be a bride for Christ or a spiritual building with him as the cornerstone or a body with him as a head. When I was a a civil engineering student, I used to marvel at the effects of old-fashioned brine extraction in (laughs) mid-Cheshire. Houses would tilt precariously on their foundations as they were undermined, great holes opening up. If you suck the salt of the earth, if you suck out the salt of the earth, the buildings start to sink and fall apart. Isn't that an evocative metaphor? I like that. Well, later in life, I was called to a small struggling local church in Winsford in that same area of mid-Cheshire, which sits on a salt mine. A church where there'd been no clear Bible teaching in living memory. And there was a lot wrong with that picture. But I've been there for 12 and a half years, praying, sharing the gospel, teaching the Bible, and administering the sacraments. So as I speak to you today about the churches that need us, I'm speaking as a minister of a church that was in great need, and still is, And there are many, many parishes and benefits like that in the Church of England. Using the picture of the body of Christ, there are are churches in poor health. They may be emaciated and sickly, lacking biblical nourishment and strength. They may be obese and out of shape, fat with wealth, but lacking spiritual vigour. Using the picture of marriage, they are churches who are unfaithful to their husband, Christ. They may be romantically attached (coughs) to idols of wealth or success or popularity or worldly credibility. Or they may reject the word that binds them to him and promote false teaching. Using the picture of family, there are churches which have broken down and become dysfunctional. What's wrong with the picture? Well, local churches are out of shape. They're out of shape. Parishes and benefices in the Church of England have been misshapen by the Church of England. It might seem very un-Anglican to say this, but doctrine is not something we discover by drawing a median line between opposing factions, whether that's in the local church or in the wider church or general synod. Some people may hold on to via media as the modus operandi of the Church of England. Although, as a side, has not taken on a slightly different meaning now via media, um, via social media, or something <laughs> like that. Yet if we think that is the only factor in the poor shape of the local church, we are deluded. Churches struggle in dioceses that don't support them, with neighbouring clergy who oppose the gospel, with church members who are manipulative and divisive, and with factions that seek to undermine the minister. Churches are misshapen by cultural pressure, not just trickled down from the denomination, but pressing in from the local community. 
and present within the local church as confused, misguided or hurting church members make their voices heard. Churches are misshapen by preferences, being held captive by our own desires. Churches are misshapen by personalities, being held captive by someone else's desires. Churches are misshapen by power play and bullying, either by ministers or by church members. Churches are misshapen by prejudice and discrimination. Churches are misshapen by obsession with material success, either because they have wealth or or because they don't. Churches are misshapen by scandal and catastrophic moral failure. Churches are misshapen by shallow, self-oriented, systematic theology. Churches are misshapen by lack of biblical theology. It is not just the machinations of the house of bishops that we are up against. It is the sinful state of the human heart in all its manifestations. This is a more complete picture of the local church, but it's still not the whole picture. What picture of church leadership do you have? I'm going to describe two extremes, both of which are problematic, and if you're like me, you'll have a bit of both. First, the idealist. We want to be able to minister faithfully and effectively, following our calling and using our gifts. And for us, that means things have to be in order. We need adequate resources so we're not weighed down with worry about finance, administration and buildings. We need to be clear on sound doctrine so we can make bold statements about our position on key issues. Second, the saviour. We're still idealists, but we're willing to go to a place that's not quite ideal and, you know, make it so. The church may even be an established evangelical church. But there's a lot of things that need improving. Or the church may have never had a biblical ministry. But we are going to change that. Or we might be able to pull together a team to go with us. Or we might just go it alone and persevere. We can't be idealists with an over-realised ecclesiology. Every church is imperfect and will be a disappointment to us. And more than that, We are imperfect and we will be a disappointment, most of all to ourselves. But then do we all need to be saviours? Well, no, we can't be saviours because Christ alone is saviour. The local church is out of shape, but if we think we can knock it into shape, we are wrong. We can't. And that is not because the Church of England is beyond the pale or because of scandal or because of lack of resources or because of opposition or any of those things I mentioned before. It's because we're out of shape too. We are afflicted with the same disease that causes doctrinal drift and moral failure. We can't be idealists and we can't be saviours. But in the grace and providence of God, we are called to lead churches that make disciples. We are called to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, as it says in Ephesians 4, verse 12. We are sinners redeemed by grace. 
We know the depth of God's grace from our own story, but we do not have a monopoly on the grace that saved us. God's grace can heal a hurting church, transform a dying church, and reunite a divided church. And the part of a church leader in that is vital. But the picture is still not complete. Church leadership is a ministry that is shaped by the relationship between God and his people revealed by his word. In other words, as well as being grace-fueled, it is covenant-shaped. Local parishes and benefices in the Church of England are out of shape, but I want to show you that they're covenant-shaped, and they're also embedded into local communities. So first of all, covenant-shaped. Why do local parishes and benefices in the Church of England need evangelical leadership? Well, let me describe... Uh, the current man- manifestation of what I think is simply part of a bigger issue, and it's something that you'll be horribly familiar with. Local churches are mostly in a state of confusion and uncertainty about human identity and relationships. Internally, in a lot of church families, this is causing tension and even division. There is, among congregation members, a lack of biblical certainty. That's the bigger issue. The Bible narrative is spoken of quietly and timidly, if at all. But every day, these church members that we love have the enveloping narrative in their own families, with young people growing up immersed in a digital culture, and maybe with family members who are in same-sex relationships, and maybe with other family members who are distressingly homophobic. And every day they go to work, where they're caught between campaigning colleagues, corporate virtue signaling, and systemic prejudice and harassment. Then at home, streaming their favourite series on Netflix, they're carried along by a powerful story that makes Christian ethics seem archaic. In the wider community, the church fears relational damage that will affect evangelistic outreach, even worse, being targeted by campaigners. And from the perspective of Christian compassion, as we love the lost, it seems impossible to hold an orthodox position that won't cause hurt. (coughs) Sound familiar? What are we to do? What's the local church to do? Teaching a series on the subject of sexuality, people might say, do that. But it seems that repels the uncertain and attracts campaigners from both sides, maybe even setting the stage for pitch battle. I believe what is needed is deeper roots in biblical and systematic theology. Biblical theology to show that God is Lord of history, that he's been working out his purpose from creation to new creation. Thus, God's word does not simply explain his actions in the past. It gives true perspective on his rule in the present and a certain hope for his plans in the future. An understanding of God's word as covenant gives a good foundation for a deeper understanding of our Christian faith. It it connects easily with the being and attributes of God as Lord and the person and work of Jesus Christ as Saviour. It opens our eyes to the awakening, uniting and equipping work of the Holy Spirit. It frames our understanding of church as a covenant community, as a spiritual family. 
Thus it leads naturally to teaching the whole Bible perspective on life and faith, or in other words, systematic theology. Systematic theology shows us who God is, who we are, how we can relate to him, and what it means to be his people. I love John Frame's definition of it, all of the Bible applied to all of life. And within that framework, we can then see where the Bible's teaching on marriage and providence fits. And it makes sense. It more than makes sense. It testifies to God's glorious love. And this is a long-term work of teaching the whole counsel of God within the community of disciples. In Acts 11.26, Paul and Barnabas stayed for a year in Antioch and taught great numbers of people. They stayed put for a year, which in Acts is, is quite something. I think it might take us longer than that. But Luke goes on to report the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Local churches need discipleship. But church leaders are called to more than simply teaching. Discipleship requires fellowship as much as teaching. It is relational as well as doctrinal. Whenever the subject of human sexuality draws debate, there is a contest over the definition of love. Usually a heated contest. We cannot speak of love without showing love. Doctrinal values need relational capital in the lives of disciples. Understanding the love of God requires both biblical and ecclesial context. For someone to move from one definition of love, which they feel defines their whole identity, to another definition of love, which redefines their whole identity, it's a massive shift. It needs a relational context for that change to happen. And, and don't shout at me, the Holy Spirit, obviously. God is covenantal. His love is based on truth. And truth, his truth is revealed in love. You can't prize those things apart. His love is revelatory. At the cross, Christ poured out his love in sacrifice and at that same time revealed God's perfect justice and holiness. God's is truth, his binding. Those who put their faith in the gospel of Christ, in the truth, are united together in his body and become brothers and sisters in him. It happens at the same time. And a church leader is one who curates a culture of discipleship, this unity in Christ. First, by preaching the word, calling people to repentance and faith in Christ and thus membership of this church, then also by the same preaching, exhorting church members to live as Christian disciples, to mature, to be fruitful and to make more disciples. And we know Paul's emphasis on the godly character and example of those who set their heart on this noble task in 1 Timothy 1.3. The church leader is a pastor, a shepherd, who not only directs but also watches over the flock of God. And I want to make the case now that this is through the faithful administration of the sacraments. We put our faith in the word of God, preach it faithfully. But church is more than a sermon dispensary. The word forms a people. 
binds the people together who are united in Christ. It's a covenant word. A bond based on the word of Christ. A covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship is marked out by visible signs and seals. Those visible signs and seals given to us by Jesus are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Article 19 of the Articles of Religion of the Church of England, which I'm sure you could quote to me, but I'll read it out for you anyway. The visible Church of Christ is a congregation of, uh, I will adopt the language, of faithful people, it says men, in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that are of necessary, necessity or requisite to the same. And I believe that the ecclesial foundations and structures of the Church of England are intentionally covenantal and reflect the pattern of God's relationship with his people revealed through the narrative of Scripture. The Church of England's rich liturgical heritage tells the story of God's mission in and through the church, putting it on the lips of gathered worshippers. So the local parish church may be out of shape, but it is covenant-shaped. There's a confessional foundation defining the saving faith of disciples. And there's a sacramental pattern defining the visible community of disciples. Baptism, rightly administered, defines the membership of the church. Whole families included in the greater spiritual family. The Lord's Supper gives us a wonderful moment when we remember and testify to who we are in Christ. It's a moment when we consider the word God has laid on our hearts that day, when we reflect on our daily lives and witness, when we celebrate our fellowship in Christ and when we are reminded of our hope in him. It's a moment when we discern the body of Christ, the visible church. The Church of England is part of the larger body of the church in England, the covenant people of God in the church age in our country. Anglicans, however, acknowledge and administer a geographical and formal ecclesial bond beyond local churches, which I think is an extraordinary blessing. Other denominations and church polities acknowledge interchurch relationships in other ways, but with the Articles of Religion, the Book of Common Prayer, the ordinal canons, synods, liturgy, bishops, dioceses, deaneries and parishes, I find that Anglicanism discerns the greater body of the visible church with unmatched depth, complexity, beauty and posterity. That's why it's so sad what's happening at the moment. What the House of Bishops have done this year has made our mission harder. Our parish churches have been there, a place where everyone has been welcoming that community where they can come and experience the compassion and mercy of Christ, but also where the immovable truth, inextricably linked with that boundless love, has been the foundational doctrine. Though many might have ignored it. It now seems that the premise of God's love for same-sex attractive people has just been reduced to a yes or no answer. So the question of a blessing. It's made mission more difficult. 
And church leadership is going to be painful. But if we zoom out and take a wider perspective from, the church, from church history and from the global church, we have got it quite easy and comfortable for a little while. And easy is not the norm. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. I know some of you love the Middle Ages, but it wasn't the easiest time, and it lasted a thousand years. <laughs> there are over a hundred million Christians in Nigeria. The fastest growing church, and more Christians are killed there than anywhere else in the world. I say that, but in being faithful agents of God love, God's love, there is a benefit in being in a Church of England parish, which is established community presence. And more to the point, covenant-shaped community presence. But back to my sort of <coughs> statement. The local parish churches that need us are out of shape, but they are covenant-shaped and embedded in the local community. I want to finish by talking about that community presence. On the day that General Synod voted for the House of Bishops' proposals for the prayers of love in faith, I received a text from a local community group leader. Before I tell you the content of the text, let me give a bit of context about the local community group. It's been quite simply the most amazing gospel opportunity I've had in all my time at the church. It just came from nowhere and answered a prayer of many years of prayer, maybe. But it just arrived. It's a request to use our building one Easter. And then I met with them. And this group is embedded in the local council estates, which have been almost impregnable. Not only were they keen to collaborate on outreach events, they get stuck in and help, and they work really hard. The resources that we didn't have to do things, they provide. One text message to one of them can get dozens of unchurched people to an event. It's easy. We serve Christmas dinner to 60 people, and they did almost all the cooking. I ran an evangelistic Easter egg hunt, and they provided all the food and crafts after it. They apply for the grant funding. I'm hopeless at grant applications. They seem to just walk into it. They get food parcels and gifts to hand out to people, and they let us help and meet the people. There's, there's much more, and they're amazingly open. Many of them asking questions about God. Uh, one family has started coming to church regularly. There are a whole bunch of families and individuals that now come to our fortnightly open door event, and that's all we do is just open the door and they come in and we get time with them. Gay marriage, yes or no? That's what she wrote. I invited her around for a cup of tea the next day and hardly slept. I trotted out my best explanation of God's love and truth and she seemed to glaze over. I don't agree with you. I would love it if you married gay people, but I think there's something in this Jesus thing because I've met your church. And if anything, our relationship has deepened since then. Now, this is the northern working class. And many of the people on the estates are profoundly homophobic. And I appreciate there are different contexts. I think that the local parish church building functions like the altar to an unknown God in many communities. But it's there. They like it being there, whatever they think it is. My community is very superstitious. The churchyard is full of tat. 
And I'm always getting asked about ghosts. But there are so many partnerships and connections available to a local vicar. Now, it's not all positive. Like most places, it has a Facebook community forum. <laughs> Which is mostly about being gently nosy. And in, our <laughs> in our community, that's fires and police raids on drugs, things like that. There was a helicopter over the estate last, um, last weekend, and there was lots of traffic about that. You know, I think it was drugs this time. But there was a massive explosion behind my house uh, in the <laughs> just before the summer, this roof blew off our house. So that set it alive. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, gently nosy, or selling stuff, or finding a lost pet. But it's also a place where people say really nasty things about each other. So I had the unwise notion to put up a notice in the churchyard to ask people to clean away the tat and made myself public enemy number one for, well, two or three days, because it does move quite fast, this thing. In the <laughs> My wife, bless her, contacted the most, one of the most vocal, or two of the most vocal people, and one of them got back to her. He suddenly became very pleasant. I did the same with one lady, and then actually met another lady, and face-to-face, -face, it was a very different conversation. The parish ministry is the opposite of internet trolling. <laughs> Rather Rather than lose empathy, you, you seem to, I don't know what it is, you have to have this relational capital. You have to stay there a while. It takes a while. You can gain this relational capital. And when a church family is embedded in a local community, they testify in person to both the love of Christ and the truth of his word. Being a parish church carries an existential mandate to be for the local community. To be covenant-shaped in context. As faith in Christ is embodied in the lives of Christians who are embedded in the life of the community. So the local parish churches that need us are out of shape, but they're covenant-shaped and they're embedded in the community. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we both thank you for the Church of England and ask for your mercy, your great mercy on her. And we thank you for local parish churches and we pray for them. We pray for ministry that shows your love and stands on your truth. And I pray for all of us here and our calling in your providence, Lord. Uh, lead us by your grace, trusting in your grace. And use us to your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, George. We've got plenty of time, so, um, <laughs> in a great way. Um, so, why don't we um, buzz around for a minute, um, thinking about what we've heard from George? Uh, we all have a context, so it will be readily applicable. Um, it will also have challenged us and inspired us in various different ways that are less readily applicable. So why don't we um, have a chat with someone for five minutes or so and then do some questions if there are any. Is that all right with you, George? Is that okay? Great. Buzz away. Yes. Thanks so much. That was a really, really good talk. Um, I suppose one question that I had was, how, how do we... Um, so, so I think you made a reference to um, people being... Um, persuaded, <laughs> to put it loosely, of, of, of affirming positions on the basis of 
well, my, my child came out to me, and mm -hmm. so therefore, in order to love them, in a shallow and short term way, of course, mm -hmm. I would affirm that. How do we combat that? Because it seems to me that is the real heart of the affirming movement. It's kind of this, this sort of subtle emotional blackmail on the door. How do we develop a, a theology of emotion that prevents that? Yeah, I think one of the things of warn against is, is becoming emotionally hard. Uh, and if you've got somebody in that situation, listen to them. Mm -hmm. Try and understand their, their heart. I find um, on this subject, there's um, <coughs> a podcaster called Preston Sprinkle, who does a thing called Theology in the Raw, who gives, it just maps out a load of territory, uh, just a, a way of approaching this topic with a firm, orthodox foundation, but a really compassionate heart. Mm -hmm. And, and just discerning, we've, we've not been nuanced enough, we've not understood the complexities of, of, of this issue. Uh, and so we, we are kind of burdened with our own response, the history of our own responses at the moment, which have been quite uh, sledgehammer-like and, and unhelpful and cause pain. But I think the beauty of being in a local parish and being embedded in the community for a long time is it gives you the chance just to be there and listen and become have a relation have a, a relationship with the people in the local community so that they can say i know i don't agree with you i know you hold a different position but i feel loved i feel welcome here and and if you're in a revitalization situation like i have i mean it's going to be four or five years before you know you Kind of, kind of in a place where you know you can say this is the doctrine of the church, and, and do you see where it fits? Um, which is really you know, then this is the doctrine of the church. I can prove it from history, or I can prove it from the Bible. It, it's not good enough. It's uh, you need to know that I love you, uh, uh, and with the love of Christ, and you need to see how it fits in the whole counsel of God in the story of of the whole of history that God has written. But but with people like that, I think having the time to. Try and be be persuaded of their position. Let, live in there, live in that for a, for a few days. Let, try and be there and see what you're arguing against, mm -hmm. uh, and see how you see what you're trying to minister into. Because you're not going to be able to browbeat argue them out of their position. You, you're going to only going to be able to draw them in love to closer to Christ. Uh, think of you how if you had were in that situation and that had happened to you. And you sort of realise that you, you, you can't think the way you used to think anymore. What, if someone, what could someone do to help you in that situation? Ste come back to God's word. What words, what manner, what, what, would, what would connect with you? I think that's, we've got to start thinking like, like that. That would be the sort of thing. But, but don't, you know, I think in evangelical world we can feel under pressure to get quick results to sort of be able to sort of fly the flag and, you know, have our banner up and, and, and be holding to this line. And, and, and it's not really how we're going to do ministry. We're, it's, we're going to be embedded with all the love and the truth of Christ. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really helpful. I'll just quickly say, I think, um, yeah, I totally agree in, in responding to people's experiences of attraction and living in sense of the my, 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 the real kind of root of my concern is, is not about that, but it's more about how, that, how 
people coming out in an emotional way then causes people that don't experience same sex attraction to feel compassion for them and then change their minds yeah. because of that emotional response, but not because of music <coughs> or scripture or traditional. Yeah. How, how would you respond to that, that specific? So I, I think one of the things um, that I think is helpful to say is. Uh, as you perhaps say, this is where I stand on the Bible. But if you do not, uh, if you find yourself same-sex attracted, you're welcome here. If you do not agree with what me, if you kind of think I've got it wrong, uh, you're still welcome here. Yes. You know, there's a, a and trust in the Holy Spirit. There's a man in my church who who says he, he still doesn't really get this where it comes from in the Bible, but everything else overwhelms him. He's addicted to church. He loves it. And that thing that is, is a niggle that he just can't get his head around, he'll let it sit because he knows that he belongs. He knows the love of Christ. And people are going to be all there. We're all in various stages of understanding the truth of God worked out properly in our lives. Just because we might have you know, the, the orthodox view in sexuality doesn't mean that there's some other sin in our lives where we've got the thing completely, perspective completely wrong and it's just more acceptable. Uh, you know, we're all works in progress. So it's, it's kind of, the, the issue, I guess it's such a hot and difficult issue and political and, uh, and all of that. And we keep, you know, one of the arguments that we keep getting is, you know, what are the, the traditional teaching uh, on marriage causes pain. You know, what do you do with that? How do you respond to that? If you just keep doing this, you're just hurting people. Um, so, we, but we've got to say, well, if you think that, you're welcome here. Uh, and and because you're going to be here, because the Church of England has been here for so long and is going to stay, it gives us that sense of permanence and presence. I think that's what the advantage of the parish ministry is, is, is being able to just be more comfortable with that. Sorry for rambling. No, 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 it's great. Um, two from the back over there. Yeah, go for it. Oh, uh, so, um, George, uh, you painted this um, beautiful picture of that slow-burning, long-term... Uh, doctrine and fellowship, word and, and sacrament. Um, and I wondered, it sounds like one of those very uh, simple descriptions that's come through a lot of experience um, and gained gain more depth. So from, from your own experience and the experience of, kind of others in the norm network, what are some of the, the mistakes or missteps you've seen <laughs> in that and how that's done that you have learned from and would love us to learn from whatever our context? Yeah, I wish I'd had sort of something like that to look at and read uh, when I first started out because I um, just went to a, a non-evangelical church in a working-class area and tried to apply a middle-class evangelical model of ministry um, because that's what I'd learned. Um, I have a working-class background, but all of my um, theological formation is upper-middle-class because that's where it comes from. Um, so... So I just fell flat on my face with that. Um, and I think, I, yeah, everything I tried caused problems. <laughs> so so, so here's, here's one, one little story about sacraments, which isn't quite nice. Um, so I thought what I had to do was to um, make it so we only had the Lord's Supper once a month. I came into a church where they had the Lord's Supper every week, and they worshipped it. It was very ceremonial. And, and, you know, Irene said, I feel really special when I go up those steps. You know, I feel like I'm going to a little bit of heaven. And I'm thinking, oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
and things like that. I thought, I've got to change that and stop that. Because I've got this model of church where we have a morning prayer, three weeks. And then, so I wanted to impose this model. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It can really work and it can be really helpful for people. But I tried to impose it in this area. And I sort of started along the way and started changing things and moving things around. And it was sort of working. And then it dawned on me all the stuff I've just said about sacraments. I said, I've not, I've not got to stop them getting the Lord's Supper. I've got to harness that thing that it is, that it's present in the life of the church, and teach about it and make it what it should be which is this moment, this powerful moment every week where people can be res- sort of renewed in their covenant fidelity, could, be, could reflect on their lives and examine themselves. So I made it sort of more informal, so I brought the table forward and everything, but then made it kind of uh, more powerful, more, more, more invasive. You know, I'd stop. I didn't do the, let's go and pass the peace. I said, right, I want you to think about, if you had an argument with someone recently, are you at peace with them? Have you put that right? Our fellowship in Christ is really important. If you've, if you've not said sorry where you know you should have said sorry, don't take the Lord's Supper until you have. Uh, is there a sin in your life? And you only you could know this. It's between you and the Lord. But examine your heart now. Have you really turned away from it? Because this is the moment where we get to examine what Christ has done, who we are, and what we're looking forward to, and to think about that. And are you being loyal? So, so it gives that... So it's right to change the view of it. Uh, and to also make them look at each other. Stop looking at your shoes, look at each other. And it made them really uncomfortable. Uh, I, I like looking at the, the, the Reredos, it's beautiful. I don't look at, I don't look at them. And, and we're standing in, there's wires everywhere, and it's messy. And, and it made them, it just changed perspective, the whole thing. And, and for, that was, for, for us, that was a, a really revolutionary moment. But it was just harnessing what was there. Uh, and I appreciate that might not be the right thing in other contexts. But that was a sort of story that happened to me. Amazing. We've got time for a couple more. Robbie, you had your hand up yeah. and then come over. Yeah, thanks, George. Um, so, as, as people have said, it's a really beautiful picture of what church should be like. I guess one of the things that um, we've sometimes been saying that we want to see the kind of restoration of proper church discipline and things like that. I just wonder how, whether you have any thoughts about how church discipline fits into this kind of embedded in the community. I can imagine it's the kind of thing that would kick off on a Facebook group. You, for example, have a conversation with a warden or a Bible study leader or something like that about a particular sin in their life, and, and especially if it's something to do with sexuality. Yeah. Have you had any thoughts about how church discipline fits into Yeah, well, I think it's kind of, it's, thinking about church discipline is foundational to how we kind of do ecclesiology, uh, foundational to a theology of bishops as well. That they're essentially there for church discipline, well, they should be, they're not. So, but I think the church discipline, we often narrow it down to, or collapse it into one concept, which is excommunication. And it, it's not that. Church discipline is bringing the word of God to bear on the lives of his people in, in an honest and, and sort of faithful way. And we do it in all sorts of ways. We, when we preach, that is bring the word of God to bear on the lives of people. But when we do one-to-one work and talk about what's going on, it, it's not a quick process. Uh, but it's an honest process. I think the nearest we've got is biblical counselling. Uh, somebody's struggling with something. And I don't mean just, you know, people come to biblical counselling because they're struggling with some mental health issue or whatever, but you should come to biblical counselling well, if you're struggling with a sin in your life and you're trying to work out how to deal with that. You know, you want to get all the resources in God's word and, and in love and fellowship to come to bear on whatever it is. 
And, and the idea is it's a positive outcome. The idea is it's restoration. It's, it's not a punitive measure, it's a restorative measure. We, we, uh, we think in terms of restorative justice out in, in the kind of, um, in the world, uh, which it, often it should be punitive, but in the church it's always restorative and never punitive. It's always aimed at restoring the sin of 1 Corinthians 5, is that. So, the, so it's, it's, it's a longer process, it's more involved, it's more messy, but, but actually all of what we do is a kind of discipline and discipleship just merge into each other. We're trying to encourage people to live holy lives and when the, sin, when the sins that beset them get them, lovingly help them out of it. Um, I guess you're going to come up with a case where somebody comes forward for communion who I know is in an active same-sex relationship. And do I, well, I've, uh, I've answered that question already. I really fence the table very, very clearly. And if they still don't understand, it's not the time to confront them and push them away. But I will talk to them about it. I fence the table especially clearly at Christmas and Easter in a really loving way. You, know, you might not come to the church very often. This might be a bit of a weird thing. You don't have to do it. You shouldn't do it if you don't get it. Really don't do it if you don't get it. But you're really welcome here. It doesn't mean that we don't like you. We just really care about this thing, uh, do, doing it like that. It's never going to be inch perfect. But I think thinking of discipline in that, it's, it's a part of discipleship. It's a good thing, a positive thing that helps us grow is a better way of thinking of it. And does, um, does being in somewhere a long time help with that as well? There's been a theme kind of of, of staying put, of, of being in your parish for a time. Do you think that that helps with, um, yeah. with that? Well, hugely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, have you been there for a while? I mean, in my early years, there wasn't an awful lot I could achieve. Um, and I know you were asking about that before. But being there a long time and being faithful and listening and changing the way in which I communicate and the way in which I kind of organize church life to be as effective as possible to encourage them to love them and to help us grow together as a family to learn from them as much as they're uh, learning from me that is 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 essential but in 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 the early years you sort of got to accept that it's a long-term process and what can i do now i can probably have some really helpful one-to-ones with people and get to know them Uh, and what happens in their lives as I have a one-to-one with them will probably have quite a good impact on the rest of the church family. And that's, more, that's the best thing I did in the sort of first five years, is that just build it, just working one-to-one with people, accepting that it's slow and seems inefficient, in fact, is incredibly efficient, uh, of, of helping people grow in their, their discipleship, just sharing the word in their lives and talking about what's going on for them that that was the most effective thing then. Amazing. Thank you. You had a question. Thanks so much. We were talking about a couple of quite different communities. Oldham on the one hand, where the folk across the street are half a world away, Pakistani heritage, yeah. Muslim background, might, might be very friendly and hospitable, but there wouldn't really be ever a mm. meeting of two worlds. Um, and I'm in a village where the minister's been very faithful at Boston <coughs> himself. And, um, struggles to get into people's 300 foot front gardens <laughs> at gates because they hate what he did with their church flower or something mm-hmm. uh, and I, in, in the latter case I'm wondering when, when the point comes to brushing the dust off your feet for people who just oppose you so bitterly on those things uh, and seeking your community and I guess the, the other half of that was wondering about reaching a community that is so hard to reach despite being very close to your ground. Wow yeah profoundly ignorant in that 
Um, so I think rural ministry can, you know, in terms of time scale, you can add a naught. But but so that that is a a thing with rural ministry. They they you know they'll they'll see through half a dozen vicars uh, come and go, and and that's and and the the land ownership thing is. So I I I would I would direct your question about um, rural ministry to my colleague Chris Moore, who's in that environment. He'd love to hear from you, and can talk passionately about that with great wisdom. Um, in terms of cross-cultural ministry, again, I'm fairly ignorant, so I don't really know an answer to, to that, how you um, connect with people. I, um, there was a documentary that was done, I think it was BBC, about Winsford as the whitest town in Britain. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it was quite contrived and rather unfair, but, but so, so it, it really isn't something I understand very well, um, but there might be some wisdom in the room. Has anybody got any wisdom on? Yeah. We had a community event that we were, we were involved in two weeks ago, and I got chatting to a young guy and said, You know, where our church is in the community centre? No, never heard of it, but I go to the mosque. And so, so I wouldn't come to your church. And I said, Well, you'd be welcome to come to our church because you're. I said to him, if I'm right, you're Quran. And he interrupted me and said, Holy Quran. So I said, okay, your Holy Quran talks about Jesus. And I think you're supposed to study the Quran. So if you came to our church, you could find out about Jesus and thus be fulfilling the requirements of your Mm. faith. (laughs) And he said, no. <laughs> my, my point is, I suppose there are things that we can do. You know, we have something in common with Muslims, i.e., Jesus appears in our scriptures. Mm. So, if we can get them to think about the real Jesus as opposed to the representation of Jesus in the Quran, they might be just a small way in possibly. Thank you. And I have nothing. I have no idea what to say. when he said no. <laughs> I've got no idea where to go now. So. Amazing. Thank you, George. Um, let's uh, stand and sing our final song, um, keeping in mind all that we have um, heard and the goodness of God. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than either we desire or deserve. Pour down among us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask. But through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.